Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, would you bless the preaching of your word, even as the scripture has been read? Would we, with eyes of faith, see your fingerprints on the pages of history, and even guiding and directing with your unseen hand in our very lives? Help us to trust you, our good and loving King. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Sometimes history turns on seemingly chance encounters. Uh, there was an evening, a cold evening, three men walking up and down a path uh, out in upstate New York. Uh, it was their job to stop travelers along that road, to ask them questions, to make sure nothing that wasn't supposed to happen was, would be happening. Uh, they stopped a lot of people on that road. So when they stopped a man by the name of John Andre, they probably didn't think much of it. He was just another guy wandering through in the cold dark on his way to somewhere else. It would have been very easy for them to just let him pass like so many others that they talked to. But something about John Andre seemed off. So one of those three men said that they should stop and question him a little further. The more they talked, the more their suspicions grew. Eventually, they started asking him direct, pointed questions. Eventually, they pointed their weapons at him, at him and ordered him to strip, at which point they discovered, hidden in his underwear of sorts, some secret documents. Uh, documents that came from his friend, went by the name of Benedict Arnold, who was in the process of selling out his uh, fellow countrymen to the British. He was going to hand over the fort of West Point. Those documents also included the itinerary of George Washington, where to find him, more importantly, where to catch him. Now, because John Andre was caught and the plot was discovered, none of that happened. But how close was history to turning a very different direction? on a seemingly random encounter of chance. Of course, it's not just history that's that way. Our lives are that way too, aren't they? Why is it that you married the person you did? Maybe you sat down in one of many seats and you happened to meet them. Why is it that you became, started the vocation that you spend most of your working life in? Oftentimes, it's one of those seemingly innocuous conversations that just sort of leads there. Why is it that you live where you do, have the friends that you have, or even go to the church you do? Is it all just a case of the cosmic dice being rolled? Sometimes it comes up with a result we like, and sometimes it doesn't. Or might there be something else happening? A, a hidden hand moving and directing everything that happens from the very pages of history to our lives to a good and glorious end. Well, I think that's what the book of Esther is here to show us. That though at times our God may be unseen, he is never uninvolved. And in fact, his hidden hand of providence is guiding and directing all of our lives to a good and glorious end. And by faith, if we train our sight, we'll be able to see his fingerprints. 
Esther is a book that doesn't get enough attention, in my opinion anyway. Um, that's partly because of one of the unique features about it. Um, it is a book that does not once use the name of God. In fact, even further than that, it doesn't ever directly attribute anything that happens in the book to God, um, which is why some Christians down through the ages have been embarrassed by it, like Martin Luther, for instance. He basically said that this book should not be included in the Bible, and he wished it had never been written. Um, I think Luther m completely missed the point of Esther. Um, it's been longly held as part of the canon of Scripture for a reason. I think there's at least two important things that it's supposed to teach us. Uh, the first thing that it's supposed to teach us is that history is really the story of our God's sovereign providence. That though at times it's not easy to see, that with eyes of faith you can see the fingerprints of God guiding and directing us. Even moving the very world itself to the place that will bring about the things for our good and ultimately for his glory. The second thing that it shows us is a bit of our own history. Um, even though the name of the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, is not used, the covenant people are present. That is, there are many Israelites in this story. And in fact, one of the most dramatic moments of the story itself is the threat to wipe out all of the Israelites present in the world at that time. Now, if that were to happen, there would be no line of David for a man named Jesus to be born from. So the salvation we see of the people in this book is really our story of how God brought about our salvation as well. A few other things about the book of Esther. Um, it's about 10 chapters long. Uh, this afternoon, you could read through it in about an hour because it's not that long. Um, also, because it's just a really, really good story. It's a page turner. Now, it does have a number of very official sounding asides. You may have heard that. Three verses about how important these seven eunuchs are, for instance. But once you learn to read around those things, you'll see a beautifully crafted story. It has all the hallmarks of a good story. It's set in an exotic location, 2,500 years ago, in the height of the Persian Empire. Uh, we find ourselves in the courts of King Ahasuerus, with all his opulence and regal pomp. Uh, we see the inner workings of palace intrigue. We see examples of beautiful people and powerful schemes. And even ordinary people that get caught up in things much, much bigger than themselves. There's dastardly villains, almost cartoonish in how evil they are. And there's even strong heroes and heroines who have to show courage and faith in order to save the day. And best of all, there is a great reversal. Uh, there's a moment of tension where all seems to be lost and then a turning of the tables before salvation arrives. It's a great, great story. I know we're going to draw much from it. What I hope, though, that we find uh, in our journey together over these next five weeks is a greater trust in the true sovereign God who, though he is hidden, is guiding all things by his hand toward a good and glorious end.
We'll find that in the pages of Esther. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the first two sections of that, most of, all of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2, and we'll learn this main truth, that we need be, not be troubled by the supposed sovereigns of this world, because the true king reigns in heaven. We need not be troubled by the supposed sovereigns of the world because the true king reigns in heaven. We'll see that in two sections. First, chapter one, we'll see a sovereign who looks silly. A sovereign who looks silly. And then second, in chapter two, we'll see a star rises with a secret. A star who rises with a secret. Let's begin with that first section, a sovereign who looks silly. Uh, chapter 1 introduces us to King Ahasuerus and his royal court. Ahasuerus was the unquestioned ruler in the Middle East in that day. His capital city, Susa, would be in modern-day Iran. He was the son of his father, Darius. Uh, you may know Darius as the one in the book of Daniel who conquered the Babylonians. That's the story with the writing on the wall. That was Darius who led that daring conquering of the Babylonians. And now the Persians are in charge. And Darius is gone, which means Ahasuerus is the one who rules the roost. And Ahasuerus is quite a colorful character. Uh, he lives up to all your expectations of a self-centered, very powerful king back in those days. He has a vast empire. It goes all the way from India to Ethiopia back in those days, 127 provinces. He's just completed a building project. He's built out Susa to be a citadel. That's the place where he will rule from. And he's the sort of guy that when he completes something, wants to make sure everyone knows that he's done it. So he throws a really, really big party. A party big enough for the entire city, in fact. Uh, it's in the court, courtyard of his royal palace, and it goes on for many days. It's described in opulent detail. There's marble pillars and gold couches and all the food anyone could possibly want to eat. There's wine flowing without end. There's even a party just for the women of the city, thrown by the ravishing beauty, Queen Vashti. So beautiful, in fact, that she, her, just by her being his wife, everyone is jealous of a hazardous. Yes, in fact, this is the sort of party that only the very richest can throw to make sure that each and every person that comes knows just how rich they are. Which is why I guess it's not all that surprising why even early on, we have some hints that powerful Ahasuerus is a little insecure in his sovereignty. Uh, did you catch that little detail in verse 8? And the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. I read about that. It seemed stranger and stranger the more I understood uh, there is an official rule, that, like a law that Ahasuerus makes, that in essence says, everyone has to have fun at my party. Now, that's not the way fun works. 
But then again, Ahasuerus is not the sort of guy you tell that sort of thing to, because he's not the sort of guy that anyone says no to. So all his subjects come and enjoy his party, and yes, follow his ridiculous order to have fun or else drinking the nights away. Well, that's set up for what happens on the seventh day. In verse 10, we pick that up. Ahasuerus has been enjoying the party a little too much. So much so that his heart, is, we're told, was merry with wine. Uh, that's a euphemistic way of saying he had had more than a few too many to drink. And as so many other men down through history have done, while he's in his intoxicated state, Ahasuerus makes a decision that he will soon end up regretting. Um, Ahasuerus, in his party, surrounded by other drunk men, decides that he wants to show off one aspect of his opulent life, and that would be his ravishing beauty for a wife, Vashti. Uh, undoubtedly, Vashti must have been someone of renown for her beauty. The way she is described, she is unquestionably someone pleasing to look at. So Ahasuerus sends for her, but not just in any ordinary way. Because remember, he's not just any ordinary guy. So he sends not one, but seven very important eunuchs to go and tell Vashti to come to his drunken party so all his drunken friends can Google at her. Now, I can't say I blame Vashti for not wanting to go and put herself in such a scenario. Uh, after all, nothing good could come from it. But then again, realize that when she says no, she's saying no to a man who's not the sort of guy you say no to, at least most of the time, because she does say no, which means the eunuchs come back with their tails between their legs, and they come to Ahasuerus with a very unbecoming answer. Uh, sir, she's not coming. Yes, sir, we, we told her that you ordered her to come, Yes, yes, we made sure that she knew who we were, your seven very, very important eunuchs. Yes, sir, we read the entire edict you gave. She's not coming. Which puts sovereign king Ahasuerus in a very, very awkward spot. Now, if you know anything about very rich, very powerful, bloodthirsty rulers back then, your expectations would be in a certain place when someone dares to tell you no. You might be thinking up of cruel tortures and all sorts of horrible ways to establish dominance. But what happens next shows us just how weak this supposed sovereign is. Uh, Ahasuerus essentially gathers his closest ring of advisors around him and asks, hey guys, is there some law against this or something? Could she do this? Could she tell me no? He asks them, is there something on the books that says that queens can't do this sort of thing to kings like him? And of course, since Ahasuerus is surrounded by men who know the one rule, you don't say no to Ahasuerus, uh, they come up with a way to accommodate his very insecure reaction to Vashti. Uh, one of his advisors comes up with a way forward. He says, uh, sir, it's really not just about you, it's about the whole kingdom. If you let this slide before you know it, every wife 
of every family will feel free to disregard every single thing their husbands say. It'll be utter pandemonium. So, sir, you have a responsibility to crack down on Vashti and reestablish order. So this is what you do. You make a law that says that Vashti can never come back into your presence. She's gone. And then another law that says that every wife has to obey her husband in her own house. And sir, that will reestablish order. It's almost comical that the text tells us that this pleased King Ahasuerus. How short-sighted could he be? I mean, on one hand, how do you even enforce such a law? What are you going to do? Are you going to have a police officer show up at each house? Is your wife obeying you in every little thing? That's impossible to be able to enforce. But even worse, it's taken something that was admittedly embarrassing, that maybe a few people knew about, said in whispers in the palace courts, and it's turned it into a matter of imperial news that everybody knows about. All he's done is multiplied his embarrassment in his drunken stupor. Uh, I did have the thought, you know, there's a lot of laws that get on the books where people wonder to themselves, what drunk person put this into law? Well, here's one example. We know exactly who did it. His name is Ahasuerus. Now, what in the world are we supposed to take from this very silly sovereign and his drunken escapade? Well, I think the main application is one that has been needed for believers down through the ages. It's to learn to laugh at the supposed lords of this world. Psalm 2 tells us that the kings of the earth and the princes of men gather together against the Lord and his anointed. They oppose God with fists raised high. And what does God in heaven do? He laughs at them. And he wants us to learn to laugh right along with him. Oh, no, I'm not for a second saying that we don't have a duty to give honor where honors do. To be respectful, be obedient citizens, follow laws. And yet we also should not be overly impressed by the people that seem like they have all the cards in this world. Who have all the guns and all the gold and all the girls. And love to make sure everybody knows about it. We need to see them for what they are. Fools that for a season are allowed to pursue their folly. One day, the true sovereign over all will bring them low in front of us all. You know, there's one thing that those who take their positions of power very seriously cannot stomach. It is to be laughed at. <clears throat> um, in China, if you post a social media post with a picture of Winnie the Pooh, you could get in really big trouble. Do you know that? If you post a picture of Winnie the Pooh or like one of those animated gifs of him dancing around, um, you could have that post deleted. If you persist in doing it, you could see your social credit score drop. If you really persist in it, you might have a visit from the secret police. Why is that? Well, it's because Winnie the Pooh has become a stand-in for making fun of the unquestioned leader, Xi Jinping. Uh, some Chinese citizens think that there's a resemblance between the two. <laughs> and very serious sovereigns like him 
cannot stand to be made to look silly. So they crack down all the harder. Which, of course, makes all of us laugh all the more. Do you find yourself maybe a little worried about who might come to power in a land or what a saber-rattling sovereign of some far-off place might do? What do you remember? Fools and their folly will one day be finished because the God in heaven reigns and they are nothing before him. First, we saw a sovereign that looks silly. Second, we see a star rising with a secret. Chapter 2 picks up with the day after hangover of regret for Ahasuerus. He realizes he's made a mistake, only it's a bit too late to go back on his word. You see, he made super extra sure that everyone knew about this law, and there's no easy way to unwind it. That means... Even though he realizes he's now without the most beautiful queen in the land, he can't undo it without embarrassing himself even further. Which gives an opportunity for one of his young men attendants to come up to him with a solution, undoubtedly to bring himself some points in Ahasuerus' eyes. Uh, he suggests a royal beauty contest. Uh, king Ahasuerus, you are a king that deserves a beautiful queen. Why don't you send out another royal edict to round up all the pretty faces in the whole empire, bring them all to your harem here in Susa, and then you can choose the one that is most beautiful and pleases you the most, and you'll end up with a queen that's even better than Vashti. Now, before we go any further, I, I think you need to acknowledge that what is being suggested here is not an American Idol contest. It's not even a Miss Universe contest. It, it's something much more chauvinistic, much more crass. I wouldn't go so far as to say much more evil. Uh, these were women who were not being asked to come. They were being told to come, to spend 12 months beautifying themselves all for one night with the king that they had no choice in. And then, even if they went through all of that, there was a vanishingly small chance that they would get selected to be queen. And if they weren't, what would happen to them? Well, they would be relegated to the other harem, the one filled with all of the forgotten princesses that uh, Ahasuerus had no use for. There they would live out their days, yes, in luxury, but with no prospect of ever having families of their own or children of their own. What's being described here? is chauvinistic, and it's evil, and is exactly what you would expect for a king like a Hazarus back then. It's a self-centered power play to, to gratify his selfish desires. Well, that's the setting for the story shifting to a new scene. In verse 5, we're introduced to a family that gets swept up in all of this. Uh, they're the least likely people to be of significance in the capital of Susa, you could imagine. There's a man named Mordecai. He's one of, uh, descendant of the, uh, those who had been carried off from their home of Jerusalem to live in this far-off land as a part of the exile. Uh, he has a cousin who goes by the name of Esther. Uh, she is an orphan. Both her parents are dead. So Mordecai, who seems to be some a bit, bit older than her, takes her 
under his wing and cares for her like his own child. Now, we're not told much about Esther at this point in the story. Uh, we know she's a Hebrew. We know she has a significant name. Uh, in Hebrew, her name means Myrtle. But in Persian, her name Esther means star. I think that's very intentional by the author. Stars are meant to be seen. They shine. And what we see happening in this chapter is the star of Esther beginning to rise. She goes from absolute anonymity to being one of the most famous celebrities in the whole Persian empire in a very short period of time. Now, with that said, we're not told that this happens because of her virtue. The only other thing we're told about Esther is that she was easy on the eyes as well. She was good looking. And that's the reason why all of this unfolds the way it does. Uh, Esther gets swept into this beauty contest along with all the other girls. She gets taken to the harem. She quickly, though, finds favor in the eyes of the eunuch in charge of the whole thing. We're not told why, just that it happens. She's given all the cosmetics she needs, as well as servant girls that will take care of any other needs that might come up. After some time, it's her turn to go to King Ahasuerus. And that's when the most surprising thing of all happens. She finds favor in King Ahasuerus' eyes, so much so that he lays the royal crown on her head and names her queen instead of Vashti. He even goes so far as to throw another one of his opulent feasts all in Esther's honor. Which means this star is up and shining and it's not going anywhere. Now, in all of this, uh, I have to admit, when I first started studying this passage, I found myself drawing from the virtue of what we'll see Esther become later in the book and reading these verses with that in mind. I mean, later in the book, we will see Esther as a wonderful example of faith and courage. And there'll be lots of parallels to how we're to live as Christians when that time comes. But the closer I looked at this passage, the more the absence of those descriptions of her really stood out. There's nothing here that says she did anything aside from being carried along by events much bigger than her. And in fact, the one thing that we are told that she does has a little bit of a negative slant to it. Uh, we're told in verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. The only thing that we're explicitly told that Esther did was something she didn't do, and that is make known her allegiance to the people of Israel and the God of Israel, Yahweh. Somehow she left it off of her Miss Persia application. She conveniently didn't mention it to any of the eunuchs or to King Ahasuerus itself, which meant this star had a secret, one that had very big social implications in the moment she was living in. It also has a little bit of a, uh, draws, a uh, so draws into question uh, the spiritual heritage which she draws from. Uh, this was a moment where the Israelites were in big numbers going back to Jerusalem, being allowed to rebuild the city and even the temple to reestablish worship there and life under the rule of Yahweh under his law. 
But not all the Israelites went back. Some of them stayed in those foreign lands, and in so doing, raised questions about just how committed they were to Yahweh as king. To use our language as Christians today, people were wondering, are they just trying to become one with the world? Are they living in the world? Or have they become part of it? If that's how we're supposed to read this first section of the story, then Esther actually serves us not as an example to be like an Esther, but as a contrast. Um, maybe you're here this morning and you're on the younger side of things. Teens, those of you who are uh, of the younger generations, you have a choice you have to make about who people are going to know you to stand with. Uh, are you ashamed if people ask you what you did on Sunday to say, I went to church? Are you ashamed to be known as someone who believes in uh, a book being sent by God, his very words that's thousands of years old? Do you find yourself looking for a way to slip on by, not draw any attention to yourself, not make any waves? Uh, be very careful. The line between living in the world and becoming part of it is very, very thin. Never be ashamed of your allegiance to Christ. Never be ashamed of being part of his kingdom. Even when it costs you something socially, it's always worth whatever you give up for the greatness that he's already promised that you'll gain. I think there's even a larger application here, though, for all of us, that we would realize how much better the king of heaven the one who by his invisible hand guides and directs our very lives and history itself. How much better is he than all the kings and supposed sovereigns of this world? Uh, he never uses and abuses his bride. Instead, he lovingly sacrifices himself for her benefit. Uh, he never makes rash decisions that he wishes he could take back. But he does everything according to his perfect, wise, and good plan. Which means we can trust him in the here and now, in the days of our lives we're living, as well looking back on the pages of history to be moving all things toward a glorious and good end. Because he is the one true king. So my dear brothers and sisters, even this early in the story, I pray that you would be, begin trusting in that hidden hand of your heavenly king, that though he is unseen, he's never uninvolved, and everything he does is both for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we praise you for being loving and good, powerful and compassionate, for turning the heart of a king each way like a waterway, for accomplishing everything according to the counsel of your will, and yet for doing it all out of an abundance of love and grace for our good and ultimately for your glory. Uh, Father, would you help us not to be ashamed 
to stand with those who count themselves as citizens of heaven, but to rest wholly on the faith we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, I pray that maybe even if there's someone here this morning who's not yet come to you through Jesus Christ, that they would, by repentance and faith, find salvation from their sins and even warm welcome in the courts of heaven. Uh, I pray that all of us who are already citizens of heaven, that we would stand with firm faith and with eyes trained to see your fingerprints on the pages of history, that we would sing with joy and that our worship would be true because we know that you brought Jesus to live and die and rise from the dead so we might be saved. Oh, Father, accept this now, this musical worship, as an act of joyful response to you. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. <laughs>